Hi, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a product of the Lansing State Journal, Detroit Free Press, and USA Today Network. I am Graham Couch from the Lansing State Journal, uh, soon to be joined by Chris Solari from the Detroit Free Press, and we will talk some uh, Michigan State men's basketball, their NCAA tournament, draw and path, and uh, what we think their chances are of getting out of the first weekend. And then we'll talk a little spring football, including uh, some quarterbacks, uh, some stuff that Mel Tucker said on Monday that I think uh, leads to an interesting conversation. Uh, but first up, and um, is my colleague and friend from the Lansing State Journal, Brian Calloway. And we're reacting to the news that Susie Merchant and Michigan State have mutually uh, decided to uh, part ways. This happened about 5 o'clock uh, on Monday, or what, that was when the an announcement was made. And obviously, Susie Merchant had been around for 16 years in Michigan State, done a lot of good things, 10 NCAA tournaments, two Big Ten titles. The program had, had kind of stalled in, in the last few years, and she had obviously had some some health concerns and missed a good chunk of, of this season. So we want to we want to get into that first. Brian, how you doing, man? Hey, not bad, Graham. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for doing this. Um, I know you're coming off a, a long night of co- covering a, a gazillion very important prep basketball games deep into the postseason here. So, but uh, were you, I mean, I'm guessing you weren't entirely surprised by this, even if you didn't think it might was coming today. No, you know, you can't be entirely surprised. Just kind of when you kind of look at the the recent history of the program and kind of where it started and where it, you know, has been in recent years, you know, under uh, Susie's direction. Obviously, I mean, this was, she took over this program in 2007 and, you know, they were, MSU was on the high, you know, Joanne P. McCauley had done some good things with the program, you know, they had, you know, some of their best success ever, you know, with players like Kristen Haney and, and other, you know, various stars like that. And, you know, Susie built off that success earlier in her tenure. I mean, they had a, you know, a lot of success, you know, won some of those Big Ten championships that you talked about early in her career. And Michigan State was always right there in the mix of things, you know, constantly in the you know top three in the Big Ten and, you know, in the title contention. But if you really look at the last, you know, several years there, they've kind of been in the middle of the pack Big Ten team. And we've kind of seen other programs, you know, that used to be kind of those lower tier programs that have now found some consistent success and, you know, emerge as powers. I mean, you look at a team like Indiana, who's, uh, you know, a number one seed in the women's tournament now and was the Big Ten champion. You know, they they, they didn't used to be one of those programs when it come to, came to Big Ten basketball. You look down the road at Michigan even, and then they're a program that has doesn't have the resources that they've dedicated to women's basketball like they have here at Michigan State. And you know, Michigan's all of a sudden become a power, and they've made some deep NCAA tournament runs and whatnot under Ken Barnes or Rico, and they've kind of turned the tide in the rivalry a little bit as well, too. So I guess when you kind of look at you know, what the program's done recently, you know, well, not finishing, I'm pretty much being a middle of the pack, stuck in the middle of the pack in a Big Ten, and the Big Ten's been very good recently as well, too. I mean, I would argue that you look across the country, it's, you know, one of the best conferences out there with just the teams that were produced with, you look at Maryland, and you look at Iowa, and Caitlin Clark, the star player that they have, and you look at, you know, we talked about Indiana, I mean, Ohio State has been up there, Michigan's been up there, I mean, there's a lot of good basketball in the Big Ten as well, too, I mean, Illinois is a program that was resurgent this year after hiring a new coach as well, too, so a lot of good competition out there in, in the Big Ten, and, um, you know, when when you when you're stuck kind of in that spot, I mean, I think it was something that maybe, you know, Alan Howard probably felt like maybe, you know, it was time to kind of make a change to maybe provide some more energy to the program and maybe try to get the spark so Michigan State can be, you know, back up there in the conversation of things. To be clear, this isn't Susie Merchant being necessarily um I mean, this is uh, you know, I mean, she, the, the statement is it was a decision that she's stepping down mutual decision and I, I'm sure her health had some things to do with it and you know to be fair she's done some I mean I, I've really enjoyed covering her I know you have she's very open uh with things and a great person to tell stories about because she's so candid is <laughs> the right word I mean I I you know I can only hope the next person they get is is quite that candid and we've had some some great conversations over the years about different things and you know it, to me um and she's done a lot of really good things in in, in this community. She, she's loved by the uh, the fan base in a lot of ways, and and she won a a, a, a great deal. Um, you know, ten NCAA tournaments in sixteen years is nothing to sneeze at, right? And and there are a lot of places where women's basketball doesn't matter, where that would just be like 
lifetime contract. And uh, I, I don't think that's the case at MSU. And she did win two Big Ten titles. It has been a while. And I think it, for me, the last time it really felt like they were close to doing something like the, 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 you know, every, every program has its moment. And if it, sometimes you, you lose steam or, it, you know, like in with MSU women's volleyball, that 2017 team that went to the elite eight and Kathy George had that group and the next group wasn't, they just seemed to lose some steam. And, and 2016 was the group with Ariel powers and Tori Jankoska. And they, you know, they had that game where had they, had a home game instead of having to play at Mississippi state, who knows, they probably at least would have gotten to that sweet 16 and played UConn. And that was a scheduling mishap by with MSU having the Breslin center booked for state finals action and forcing them to go on the road, even though they were seated high enough to play at home and in the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. And if Ariel powers comes back for her senior year, which I know she wishes she did, it, it was like, you know, she, I mean, it was such a different era too, because there was no NIL, she wanted to be a pro. She's been a good pro for a long time. Um, but she was miserable that first year, and she got hurt. And She was always at the arena. She just couldn't play. If she had come back and done another year with Jankoska, that team had a chance to really take that step. And then you never know. Does some – you continue that momentum. But they never – they weren't able to get there. And, um, I, you know, and I maybe even having some years – like there was one year where they were really beat up and injured and – right around there too. And, and, um, and all some of the stuff players together, but, um, I don't know. It just, it, it, that was the last time I, you know, I remember thinking, wow, this, this thing is going someplace. And after that, there were some, some decent years and some NCAA tournaments and good teams. Uh, but it never felt quite at that level. Like it might be on the precipice again. I think that 20, I think it was 2019. I'm getting my years mixed up, but there was the one year too, when, uh, I believe it was Nia Cloudin's sophomore year, and they had made the NCAA tournament that year, and they had like this core of players. I mean, I think it was like Julia Arot was still young then, and there was a couple of other pieces like that as well too. I mean, I think that was one of those you know years as well too, where there was some kind of you know potential there, and you like, hey, this is a young group, and if they all you know come back and play with each other, you know, who knows what can happen uh, with this group, and who knows what they can do. But, you know, one of the things that always, you know, seemed to plague some of Susie's teams at Michigan State was the injury bug. I mean, I think there was there's been several years that I've covered this team when, you know, they were, you know, the injuries were the things that, that held them back just because they didn't have enough healthy players. And, you know, you think you talk about injuries. I mean, think about Madison Williams. I mean, that was one of the you know top recruits that yeah. Susie Merchant never, ever landed. And, you know, she never could stay healthy during her career. Who knows what happens if Madison Williams stays healthy throughout her entire career, what kind of legacy that she makes with that Michigan State women's basketball program and what that program becomes as well, too. So, I mean, there was some bad luck in there for her with some of the players that she had and some of the teams that she had as well, too, when injuries struck. I mean, Brandy Ag was one of those promising players that was along there with Ariel Powers and, you know, was constantly you know, hindered by injuries throughout her career as well, too. Um, so, I mean, there was some. You no know, tough luck that was in that she had you know, over the years with some some groups. When I mean, I remember there was one year that they had to go pull a volleyball player to to you know, help you know, fill out the. I think Kelsey Kuipers, they they needed a volleyball player to you know help fill out the rosters because of the injury situation that they faced as well too. And you know, kind of going back to what you said, just to kind of start you know this this uh, part of the conversation. I mean, I've known Susie Merchant since I was at Eastern Michigan. And I covered or I was around some of her. Uh, teams at Eastern Michigan when she kind of took that program and kind of put it on the map. I remember when she won a Mac championship in Cleveland with that, that group as well too at, at Eastern Michigan. And, you know, like you said, you know, earlier, I mean, she's always been, you know, someone that was you know, great to deal with, um, you know, just, you know, some of the stories and knowledge that she had, um, you know, about the game. Very, like you said, very forthcoming as well too. So it's kind of a unique opportunity for me when I, you know, you know, ended up getting my second professional job here in Lansing and then, was assigned to the, the women's basketball beat here at the, the Lansing State Journal that, you know, I was have, had the opportunity to cover someone that I'd kind of seen, you know, as a college student and kind of had, you know, seen the success that you know, she had at Eastern Michigan and to kind of see, you know, some of the things that she was able to do here. And I mean, you talk about the success, you know, she's one of only two coaches here at Michigan State women's basketball history that has over 300 wins. She's the you know, second winningest pro coach in program history. I mean, you talked about Ariel Powers and Tori Jankoska. There's Nia Cloudin as well, too. She had three WNBA first round draft picks that you know, she helped develop here at Mich Michigan State as well, too. So, 
And no, she's like you said, she's just been a, uh, you know, a good role model for young females, you know, in the community. I mean, I, I've seen some young neighborhood girls that, that you know, live in my subdivision that have constantly have been, you know, at the Breslin Center, you know, at games, watching the team, no matter what their record was, and had just been their parents or just been big fans of kind of what Susie Merchant is all about and, you know, empowering women and, and young girls and whatnot with some of the things that she's been able to do as well, too. So and she's done a lot of valuable things in the community and, and you know, touched many people's lives as well, too, and, and made an impact on a lot of young young females that are aspiring to to do big things. Obviously, I think it's an opportunity now for the for for Alan Haller and the uh, women's basketball program to to try to take that next level. And I'm I'm pretty sure he'll he's going to go after an established person. You know, he raised Susie Merchant's salary. They get a new contract going into this year, and a lot of that had to do with how he sees women's basketball. Right? It was not so much the success Susie Merchant had, but it was about how, how he sees women's basketball and, and is a sport that ought to be a priority. And I, I think it will be, and they'll take another swing. And, you know, the thing is like, yeah, you want to build on what you just had. Um, but what you just had was pretty good for a long time. And that was not a, that was not a, like a, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a really good run for Susie Merchant, I think in a lot of ways. And yeah, I'm sure she wishes they could have quite had that, you know, Something because something you're right. Madison Williams, if that whole thing happens, Varial Powers comes back. If one of those injury plagued years doesn't happen, if that young group, you know, you were mentioning in like 2019, if, if there were a bunch of times where if maybe if it comes together once, you at least have that memorable run. Because I, you know, you think back to the uh, Joanne P. McCauley era, and they have that 2005 team that is so re- revered and um, beloved, and 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 really, I think put MSU women's basketball on the map in terms of the possibilities for it. Um, because, you know, uh, before that, I mean, Karen Langland, they really haven't had many coaches. Karen Langland was there coming out of the title nine era. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. and then, <laughs> and they had some decent teams in the nineties and NCAA tournament years and stuff like that. But, you know, that was, just, it was, it was a different era and Joey and P McCauley changed things. And, 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 you know, it's, it's a program that has some things going. It has some things going because, Right now, it has an AD who really emphasizes that, and it also is a program that I think, to uh, to Tom Izzo's credit, for for a long time, when they built facilities, they did a lot of things very equal on those, you know, in terms of practice facilities and other things like that, and trying to uh, office office spaces and things like that, and trying to um, uh, which which helps now, right? You're not like um, there are places where that's just not the, the case, so. Um, it'll be it'll be interesting what I mean your sense of uh, I mean obviously somebody else is going to come in new philosophy some players will stay some will go what's your sense of of how far the program is away Brian you know I don't necessarily think it's no that far away I mean if you get the right person in and you get the right pieces in you know I think this is a program you know they can you know compete I mean and one of the things you mentioned I mean I think this program has the fan base as well too I mean they have a uh, an established fan base, you know, uh, a crowd that enjoys, you know, coming to the Breslin Center. And if you bring a winner here, I mean, you know, you can, you know, start, you know, sustaining some success. I mean, these people will be out and, you know, supporting this program as well, too. I mean, I just think that's one of the advantages that this program has, that, this, that there is already, you know, a built-in fan base that's, you know, just ready to see see this thing, you know, come together and, you know, see a lot of basketball success. Because there's a lot of people, like you said, around here that, you know, care about women's basketball. And, and you, you mentioned Alan Howler. I mean, I remember when the, I think it was the last time the women were in the NCAA tournament. I mean, he was there on site with them and, you know, he's constantly, you know, been around the program and, you know, as, a, as an administrator. And I think this was before he was even, even the athletic director that he was, you know, on site with them kind of seeing, oh, it was actually the year where there was the issues with the, uh, the women's tournament, you know, not having the uh, unequal treatment to the men as far as accommodations and things like that. And I remember that was the year that Alan Howler, you know, flew down to where the tournament was at and, you know, was kind of assessing things and making sure that Michigan State women's basketball and their student athletes were taken care of as well, too. So you have someone right there, as, as you've mentioned, Graham, I mean, that's invested in the program that, you know, wants to see see things go well. And I mean, you have a fan base as well, too. I mean, I, I think, I mean, this program, you know, you get the right new person in, you get, you know, 
the right new pieces, you get some players to stay. I mean, the transfer portal changes things as well, too. I mean, you get, you know, impact transfers in that can make some things happen. I mean, you look at Illinois this year. I mean, you know, they build on, they had some returning players that stayed, but they got some pieces, you know, in the in the portal as well, too. And, you know, they were ranked in the top 25 at times this year. And, you know, you know, were, you know, a team that was in the upper, upper tier of, of the Big Ten as well, too, after, you know, struggling for so long as well, too. So, I mean, I think there's potential here for, for the program to, you know, start, you know, making that that climb back back towards the top of the Big Ten, you know, depending on, you know, getting the right piece. That is Brian Calloway. He is our uh, preps editor and um, does a wonderful job uh, also covering uh, Michigan State women's basketball for us at the Lansing State Journal. Brian, very much appreciate the time. And um, it'll be an interesting month. You'll get you'll get a coaching search to cover, which is always fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the middle of everything else, <laughs> everything else you have to some degree. Uh, no, I appreciate the time, man. We'll talk soon. Hey, thanks for having me. That is Brian Calloway. Um, all right, we're going to move on now to Chris Solari uh, from the Detroit Free Press and talk Michigan State men's basketball and their NCAA tournament path, which begins Friday in Columbus against USC and then potentially on Sunday against the second seed Marquette. It, it's funny because the way this works to kind of roll back the curtain is we're, you know, trying to figure out where you're going to be. Columbus really wasn't on the radar. And I don't know if it wasn't on the radar because we didn't see it or because we were all hoping it wouldn't be Columbus. And there's nothing against Columbus. The NCAA tournament is just a time where we get to kind of go somewhere new sometimes and see an area of the country or a town that you uh, might not travel to on your own, and it's a, one of the real perks of the job, like Greenville was last year. Great place. Um, and Columbus oh, is a pretty pretty uh, standard fare for the Big Ten. Um, but uh, I think it's good for Michigan State in terms of its own fan showing. I think it's good for Michigan State in terms of its opponent playing a game that will be 9-15 in the morning for them. Um, and so I think there are a lot of positives in terms of hoping Michigan State will advance. Um, and uh, and I even think the matchups with both USC and potentially Marquette aren't that bad, given that neither one of these teams is like a great rebounding team that's going to beat them up in the glass. Yeah, and and I think uh, – but the one thing I do think is if they do get through USC and Andy Enfield runs a, a pretty good – I think it's their third straight NCAA appearance there. Um, you know, Marquette obviously was shock and smart. It's it's a different style of play that you know can be troublesome for for Michigan State. So, but it is I, I think their bracket is pretty good for them. I I think that things shape up their way, and I mean, who knows? I mean, what ends up? Let's say they make a run and they get Purdue again. It would be I believe in the regional final. Um, that would be kind of wild, and it would very it would very much speak to the Big Ten's depth and and talent, but. That's a there's a lot of basketball before that ends up happening. Yeah, no, and 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 I think it, this is a tournament that, you know, when you have a seed that's better than a seven, um, sometimes you may I don't want to say take for granted the first round, but you sort of start to anticipate the the weekend or the uh, sorry the run the, the the possibilities. I think Michigan State fans have been in a spot the last few years where, and really probably since Middle Tennessee State when they were a two, but. Um, yeah. Where there is no, you know, not expecting anything beyond. They're hopeful, but not expecting anything beyond the first game. They don't take that game for granted. And I think, um, I, I do think it's a decent matchup. I, I don't, I, you know, this is not a, like Drew Peterson's a, an interesting player. He's a six nine guard and a second leading scorer for USC. And you, you start to wonder about that matchup. But but they don't have guys, even though they're tall, who can beat you in the post. They're not a great right. shooting, shooting team. They have some decent rim protection. Not, this isn't like a, I don't know. The, you know, you remember the USC team that played them in two thousand nine, when Michigan State was a two and USC was a ten in the second round, and Michigan State went on to the final four that year. But you know, that USC team may have been the best team they faced until the very end. I mean, that was um, that was a scary, scary team that was under seeded. This does not appear to be quite that level. They, a lot of, you know, inconsistent, um, capable of beating Michigan State, no doubt. But I, I, I just, I, you know, there, there are worst, worst matchups Michigan State could have seen right away. 
yeah, there were some future pros on that USC team. Yeah. Um, you know, with DeRozan and uh, Todd Gibson. And, yep. Uh, I believe, actually, you know, and, and looking at El Vucevic, but in uh, looking at that, uh, Master Peace son, Percy Miller was on that team as a freshman. I forgot about that. Been a while. He ended up transferring a bunch. But, yeah, that uh, th- this does seem like it shapes up pretty well because they don't rebound the ball very well, and that's something that Michigan State hasn't done. I, think, I believe uh, I, I saw uh, – stat online uh, on uh, Twitter uh, from one of our, our readers that these two teams are among the nation's leaders in long twos as well. So they, they do kind of have a similar, a similar style in, in the things that they do. But, but I do think that, I mean, you look at this Michigan state team and you see what they've done, you know, in this time of the year, we talk about body of work, right? I mean, you look at the, the totality of the season, there were points, I'd say probably through what maybe early February when they might've been, you you could have argued that Michigan state was maybe the best defensive team in the country, at least on the perimeter, not not so much in the paint as Zach Eady and his 70 odd points or whatever it was and 30 odd rebounds showed, but, but definitely on the perimeter they were, and this modern game is predicated on the three um, like it or not. Uh, But then that has, since dried up at least over the last five or six games and you know it, it's proven costly but they also at that point showed well man they've got about five guys that can can really light you up and put together 20, 70 points themselves um in extended minutes so it it, it i've kind of looked at this season and really from the start till now it's just a, such a wild card, particularly after the Gonzaga and Kentucky games. You know, we went in thinking, well, maybe, you know, they have a chance to, to crack the top 25. Uh, they have a chance to – they'll more than likely get to the tournament, but we, you know, maybe not make a run. I think this team has shown it has the components to make the run. It just hasn't put them all together all at once. It's a challenge. That's – I mean, ultimately, this is usually – Usually it's about two or three weeks earlier that Tom Izzo puts it all together. But, it's, I mean, let's face it. He's he's done a lot of things in different ways this year. As much as people want to say things are stale or whatever, I mean, I mean, he's how many guys are getting around 30 minutes a game? Not You know, we're talking 28 to 30 minutes a game. You know, he's playing with a limited roster, giving guys minutes, giving guys shots. Uh, should they take them? Sometimes they aren't. And sometimes some guys are taking more shots than they should. Um, but it, 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 I, it, he has been nothing to me uh, other than uh, I, I, he's adapted. He, he's adapted, and he's, I think he's still trying to figure out how to adapt to something like this, this scenario with these guys and a limited bench and, and trying to get the things that he normally has out of a 12, 13-man roster out of 10. Um, it, it's just taken a long time, you know, but – They've done it before. I mean, they they made they've been a seven seed three times. I think they lost in the first round once to Nevada, um, but then they made a deep run. I think to the Elite Eight one year and lost to Texas, and then they made it to a Final Four in twenty fifteen. So, to me, this team has some of the the makings of that twenty fifteen team with the guard play, but you, you still can't overlook the the hole in the middle. And you know, but that's the neat thing about this time of the year. And Tom Izzo said it a couple times Sunday and Monday guard play wins you in the tournament. And that's, I think something that gives them a chance to make a run. Yeah. I mean, I think this team has a little more to it than some other teams that have, have been seated similarly. And I think that is there. It was never a bubble team. Um, and it was a team that was, I, uh, you know, I, I think it's better than last year. Um, you know, and, and because, you know, last year it was, was better at the five, but I think this team is better at every other spot. I know Hall is not playing well right now, but the backcourt, I mean, Tyson Walker is really Julius Marble. Yeah, but 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 Walker is a considered you, you would trade, I mean, obviously ideally if you're Michigan State, you'd have Julius Marble, but but you would make the trade to have you, you you to lose what they lost in the five to have this version of Tyson Walker, this version of AJ Hogard most of the time, this version of of Jaden Aikens. This version of Joey Hauser, I mean, until that, you know, Dayton or uh, Davidson game, you know, Hauser was nowhere near the player last year that he's become and consistently been so. And, 
And, and so I, you know, I mean, there's just a, they can hit you with a lot more in that sense. And, and so they, they do have some things that, that, that give them a chance to, to, to make a run. Um, and I, and I think really there are very few teams that on a given day, if they had been an eight seed, it almost would have been, I think, unfair to a one. Like this is a Michigan state team where, and I think they should consider this stuff in the tournament. Like you shouldn't, if you work all year to be a one seed and you've earned a one seed, you sh- there should be certain types of teams you avoid. Now, unfortunately, you can't do that in the Big Ten where everybody is so bunched up. There's a lot of teams seven through ten. You got Illinois, uh, you know, eight or nine seed, and, and that you know they're going to face a one in the second round, and you can't avoid it to- altogether. But the best of Michigan State it, this year has shown itself to be just about as good as anybody in the country on a given day, at least in this season of college basketball. Um, and, I, and I think that's different from other years where they've been a team seated like this. It, it, yeah. And, but to argue your end on that, um, you know, there, there's woeful underseating of some of those mid-major teams and low-major teams that have really good teams. I mean, what, what, what Oral Roberts have out? Yeah. Oral Roberts is one of those teams with, with the, the kid, the 7'5 kid who can shoot outside and the Abramas kid. I mean, they can they make some hay. I think in this tournament. Well, there are a lot. Yeah. I mean, there, there are lots of, there are always teams that are under seated and, and, and under, um, but, but is that it? Let's say that they were just there. There are 12. Let's say they were, let's say they were seated as a nine. It, you know, if they have a, a nine kind of season, if they're, if they're a nine kind of team, you know, is that fair to a, a well, one seed that earned it? Well, and, and so the other thing is the, the reason for the five twelve. you know, you know how the five twelve is sort of the famous upset. Yes, forever, and that what that stems from is the they NCAA play tournament. they play Duke by the way, <laughs> right? And it stems from the NCAA tournament selection committee inability to judge mid majors because what used to happen is the five was this pretty decent high major that had an underwhelming season but had a big brand and had some good wins, and the twelve was a mid major that knew how to win that was a great team together and was just in a better place, and then they would play that five and 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 really they were a better team. It wasn't that much of an upset. Um, Oral Roberts, by the way, is 30 and four. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's what happens. You get rolling, you start believing and, and you're, you're, you're just better than a lot of these, a lot of these teams. Like when I, and, and when I look at, at Michigan states, you know, side of the, uh, that bracket, you know, I, like Vermont is a, a team that could be interesting against Marquette. Now we, it, it's one of those things also, when you start saying that too much, and I'm hearing a lot of people say that, that all of a sudden, there's no chance. The obvious upsets never, never actually occur. Um, but uh, it is, it is an interesting, you know, I mean, Kansas state, Kentucky, Providence all over there. Um, I mean, we've seen Kentucky. I, yeah, I think that Kentucky has some matchup problems, but that's all second week. Like at this point, the, the thing about this Michigan state team is getting to the second weekend is, is such a goal for them. And would be such a, an achievement too, given that it hasn't happened lately. And, and they, they're a seven seed that that's almost like next week's problem. You know, it, 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 it there's almost, you know, it, it's not like the year that, that Cassius Winston and those guys showed up and Duke was in the region and it was like, what the heck? And they wound up going through Duke to get to the final four. And that was a, a great way of slaying a, a, a you know, a long time a bugaboo, but you were already looking ahead that far. You know, a lot of people, there's just no, I don't think for Michigan State there is any looking beyond their little quadrant of USC, Marquette, and Vermont, and, and because can. getting through this you weekend can. you can't because they're not expected to, right? Right. Well, not only are you not expected to, I mean, outside seriously outside of that that 2019 season, and I know that the 20 can the 20 season was canceled and it would have probably more than likely changed this, but we also saw the 2016 team that was a two seed lose the first game to Middle Tennessee. And I think, you know, since that 2015 tournament, five of the six tournaments, they haven't made it out of the first weekend. Yeah. You know, there was the Detroit, there was the Tulsa uh, where they, they lost to Kansas. There was the infamous Syracuse game. Um, then there was the UCLA game in the first four. And then, you know, last year. So, I mean, it, you know, that, and I believe there's another one somewhere in there that I'm missing as well, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, listen, this, this, they've got the uh, – oh, the Middle Tennessee game. I almost forgot about that. Um, 
but yeah, that's, uh, that's a lot. I mean, it, you know, you can't look past that. And it, it, history tells you that, right? Your head coach tells you that who has the history. He's, you know, he, he, he's seen this all. He's seen this from the top as a one seed. He's seen it from an 11 seed in the first four and everything you, you in asked, between. You asked a great question today that I wish Izzo had answered. And uh, <laughs> it was, it was about the idea that, you know, they've been a seven seed before and from a seven seed, they have lost in the first round. They have made long runs. Um, they, they, they've been in this sort of situation and, and you were asking about common threads for teams that make runs from lower seeds or get yeah. upset from this spot. And he was like, in the way he began his answer, it was like, oh, he's going to get into something interesting here. Focus. And focus then he just couldn't focus. And thing. he did a Tom Izzo. And he just, and I don't even know if there was an answer. And, and he started to realize that. And so he just, but then he just started talking about, you know. Well, I, I think to his credit, what he was talking about was the common theme is focus. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty clear that his immediate thought was to this team's lack of focus. Um, at times when they're dialed in on the offensive end, you see what they can do, but then they aren't dialed in on the defensive end when they do that. Um, when they're focused on the defensive end, their offense has struggled and the ball movement has struggled. So I think that's kind of where he was headed um, in talking. I mean, he did say that that, that was the, the biggest thing to make that run is you have to have the focus. And I think he just didn't, he wasn't looking backward. I think, I think he was looking forward and looking at the now with the guys that he has and the concern that he has. I mean, you know, I don't think he's concerned about this team being able to play defense. I don't think he's concerned about this team being able to score. I think he's concerned, as he said multiple times, being able to focus 30 seconds at a time on each end of the floor. That ultimately has been the biggest problem for this team. And if they can get past that hump, and they're all veterans now, um, you know, that's one thing about the limited roster is he's got veteran guys that are playing veteran minutes and they got to show up. And, you know, we saw the, the situation on the sideline with AJ Hogart. He kind of blew it off and said he's seen worse things than that. And everything gets overblown, but this is the time of the year when those kind of things can't happen. Why the coach talks about the body language, why the coach after a, a loss talks about dying from the head down when all season he's referred to AJ Hogart as the head of the, the snake. Right. So, you know, those are the kind of things I think that he's trying to make an emphasis point of. Um, I, I just think that he, he got, when talking about the past, he looked immediately right to what, what the biggest concern is for him right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 he, and he's right on certain, I mean, like if you look at teams that have done it from the, like the Travis Trice, Denzel Valentine team, that was a, a different team than this in certain ways. Like Trice got insanely hot. He was a motivated and focused senior that, that saw the end coming. Denzel Valentine took big steps, um, but that was a different kind of team. Like they, that team was a lot more miserable for the first few months of the season and just wasn't having fun and was getting beat and was on the bubble. And it really was a, was in yeah, February. That, that where team it, had Matt Costello taking big steps too, which is something that, Totally. If this team, it, I mean, it, maybe a Jackson Cole or Armadi Soko could take a step like that forward, uh, but I'm not sure there's a Brandon Dawson type dog on this team with that kind of mentality that he wants the needs. No, you're you're right, and and so that that team had, had it was it just different makeup. I mean, everything everything every time it's different. The team in 2003 was sort of a young team that found itself and just got rolling. This is not a young team. It is is a team that has. Back, uh, you know, uh, veteran guards, good shooters, has a lot going for it. And really all it's missing is is a five, but that's not going to change. I don't think at this point in the season is somebody, is is that going to, you know, is, nobody's going to develop this late, most likely. Um, what you, you have to hope for if you're Michigan State is that you continue to get the best of Mati Sissoko in certain ways. It's the bouncing off the floor, chasing, you know, uh, rim protection and chasing uh, loose balls and diving and all that stuff. And then there's a guy like Jackson Kohler who, and I still think Carson Cooper could factor in a little bit, but Kohler looked, you know, a little bit out of sorts last week against Ohio State. And I think it would have helped him if they had made a little bit of a run there to get some more tournament time of the under the bright lights. But you hope that experience for him, 
translates and, and, and helps now. And you really just what you're wanting if you're Michigan State is you want the best of those guys. Because the what what is fairly clear, and, and this is very obvious when you listen to national media, and I'm not telling people to ignore national media, but if you if you hear this particular storyline, just shut off the podcast, shut off the analysis. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. When people start talking about playing small ball and going with Hauser at the five, what they're doing is they're looking at the roster and they're saying, yes, that should be the lineup that causes people problems. That should be the way to go. That's why they have a chance. But that lineup, it just doesn't work. It hasn't it hasn't produced enough trouble for teams on the offensive end to put up with what they lose on the defensive end. And they do lose things, even from when they don't have Kohler on. And certainly when they don't have Sissoko on, they are better off with one of those five and the other four. Even their best offensive lineup is that way. Their best offensive lineup is not the small ball lineup with Hauser at the five and, and, and Hall at the four and Hard, Hall guarding the five or whatever you want to do it. It just hasn't produced it that way, and the evidence is overwhelming. It, it if Hall had had a healthy year all year, yes, it might have become something. I think they were hoping it would, but it that. didn't. And at this point, you bail on it because it just every time they've tried it, and they looked at it a couple times, and it worked. It went horribly against Ohio State. It just doesn't produce for you. And so, if you hear that bit of analysis, you're immediately hearing from somebody who doesn't know Michigan State basketball and just shut it down. I I disagree in one little sense and that might be an implication of of your opinion of me with if by disagreeing i think there are moments that you can use it i don't think you can use it for long stretches i think there are very short windows where you can use them you know in that respect if you want to get your bigs the the timeout you know get them through the timeout and then bring them back in on the other side but you can't run them for four or five minutes at a time like that and especially you can't do it with Hall the way he is physically because he is not the same player if, you know, like you said, you know, had he have had a healthy year, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, you can't right now. You can't well, even and, think that. And and he's not going to get back to that point where he was before the stress reaction. And his he has mobility to go the five. He has to go the that? five because they've discovered what they yeah. do know. And this is the thing. And, and I think Izzo's done a nice job of this this year. They have not put the five when they've gone small that often on Hauser because they've seen from past experience the impact of guarding a big on Hauser's entire game, offensive too. You do not want let's look back to let's look back to the first two games. I mean, when they did that against Gonzaga, they had Hauser on Timmy and he got burned. The next game they played against Kentucky, that's when you saw Hall on Chibway and it worked. But again. Malik Hall in November is not Malik Hall right now with the, the foot issues, limiting his mobility and lateral movement, and now the back, which he said has bothered him since the Bahamas tournament last year, kind of tightening up, and I think maybe that might have been some of the reason you saw him play tight against Ohio State. Um, you know, it, it, it's a, what we saw in November isn't what we're seeing now, particularly because of Malik Hall, and I think that's why what Izzo says about him being the key to this, you know, I think there's two keys, him and and AJ Hogard, um, but yeah, I I I'd agree with you that you, you you can't be relying on that. You cannot be relying on small ball. And is there anything else in hoops you want to get to here before we go football? No, I mean you know I think the Hogard thing is kind of the one thing that you know I, we kind of touched on it, but I do think that I mean when we talk about this tournament being about guards, the one thing Tom Izzo talked about Monday today. Um, that, you know, he didn't really delve too deeply into after the Ohio State loss and on Sunday during the selection shows, just what he wants out of A.J. Hogarth and what he needs and why there's issues there and how they're trying to figure them out. And and, and I think that I thought it was interesting how he said that they he realizes that they are both stubborn and they both have their ideas of yeah. what they want. It's about getting A.J. Hogarth to buy in and do what the coaches want. He's got a coach. He's got a, a staff full of point guards in in Wojcik, in Kelly, in Montgomery, in Izzo. All of them played college point guard. You know, you got to rely on your coaches. You got to lean on them because they're the ones who have the experience. Yeah, although and sometimes the stubbornness, and I thought it was interesting how Izzo said, you know, he, the stubbornness is there, but he needs them, he needs them to listen and and follow what they want, but still maintain the cockiness that he has. So it's a balancing act that I think has been, I mean, honestly, like 
when we look at the past point guards that Izzo has had, they've all had some challenges and, and, you know, I don't want to say there was friction. There was sometimes good friction, sometimes frustrating friction, but I don't know if anybody has, has mystified him maybe more than AJ Hogart at that point guard position, just because of the way they've butted heads. And, you know, here we are three years into Hogart's career and, and, you know, on the precipice of what a lot of times is the, change for a lot of guys you know in the postseason and we haven't seen that change yet from them we've seen good moments from them but we haven't seen it consistently what's happening with hogard is interesting because look this is i mean you can talk about leaning on the coaches but aj's done this like hogard is you know he last year in the big 10 tournament uh he was fantastic that was a real coming out party for him the way he played against purdue then he played in you know was the point guard and big NCAA tournament games and a win, and then a game against Duke, and they were in late. I mean, he he has been there. At this point, he has the experience. He's had moments where he can propel them. He's what makes them dangerous in certain ways because even though Tyson Walker is their shot maker and elevates them, uh, even though they've got a lot of shooters and, and, and they've got some things going for them the way they defend, Hogarth's the guy when he starts going right and he's going downhill and he's moving it around, and it, it, it's just they get to another level, and he doesn't do it enough. And, and, and I think some of his issues, you know, he doesn't, he, for a guy is this late in his career, doesn't value every possession to the level that I think Izzo is looking for. And so we'll find out if he can do that now. And, and it's one of those things where you get to a certain point where, I mean, if it doesn't happen by the end of your junior year, is it going to happen? You know, um, and, and that's, you, you start to, you know, and, and, and look, they're going to have a better squad next year, I think, around him a little bit, uh, fewer holes, at least some more upside and some other things. But at a certain point, you've got to be able to trust that it's going to be a game-in and game-out effort because one of the things Izzo's talking about, and we talked about, you know, is the I, he's not coaching for that game. He was willing to give up the loss to Ohio State. He's coaching to make a run, to, to win championships. And that's something that I think is, you know, especially when it's the Big Ten tournament. No offense to the Big Ten tournament, but after – Untaken. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, after – it did zero for Big Ten tournament seeding, and it's already not the Big Ten championship. It's a it's a fun but relatively useless event, and we need to start treating it as such. Um, I would I would argue this: if you are a a journalist and you're one of the other two who listen, like if you don't travel to events all season, don't travel to the Big Ten tournament because like every road game at Iowa or Nebraska or wherever you know, like Ohio State that we went to is more important than the Big Ten tournament in the regular season. So I, that's just my own pet peeve. i just putting that out there anyway. because maybe, maybe when they expand, it becomes the preseason event that everyone wants to jumpstart the year. Then you get into non-conference play and then back into the well, real that, conference. That There's some interesting, interesting thing. But anyway, I, I think... I will is, say, back to Hogard, like yeah. one thing I would say is, and I don't necessarily know if this is too big of a thing to say, but he's their best post scorer. With when he goes north and south, he is their best post yeah. offense, plain and simple. He is not a jump shooter. He can hit jump shots, and at times he's shown that he can hit them pretty well, but he's still an inconsistent outside shooter. He still shoots way too often, way too early in the shot clock at ill-advised times, and those are the things that are going to drive his coach nuts. If he goes to the basket, they, they are a better team. We'll have complete coverage, obviously, the NCAA tournament. Uh, whatever Michigan State does or doesn't do, Chris will be, Chris and I will be uh, along for the ride in, in Columbus and then uh, maybe maybe New York, and um, we'll see. Um, we'll have coverage going into the games and and, and, uh, and obviously coming out of it. Let's talk some football and maybe, here. And maybe with that, if they do get there, maybe that game against Rutgers helps them a little bit to their competition. Having been, having been in that arena, yeah, sure. Talking football, which is 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 – unnatural at this time of year. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a very cyclical sports fan. So if you give me college football on March 13th, uh, I, I really struggle to care, but it is, I also understand that at some point, this stuff that Mel Tucker was talking about today will matter. And the biggest thing I think today came from the question about the quarterbacks and Mel is sort of addressed this, but he, he was pretty, um, pretty open and blunt on that this is a uh, – I got it word for word here. Um, he said it's very clear the quarterback position is an open competition. Peyton Thorne knows that, and all the quarterbacks know that. 
he'll be able to handle that. Uh, we're expecting a fierce, a pretty fierce competition, you know, and that is something I think a lot of fans have wanted. Um, I think it's something that has to happen in terms of an open competition. I do not think it's the end of Peyton Thorne necessarily, but I think given the, the way he played last year, the inconsistencies of the offense and the talent that was underneath him that at some point deserves a chance. It's not just, just because you're the older guy and the starter doesn't mean it's just your job until you're done. That's not really fair to the other guys. And you just happen to be older than them when you started and then you get to keep starting. So I think this is totally fair. I am curious. I, I would love to know fly on a wall what Mel Tucker and his staff and Jay Johnson really think is going to happen, is likely to happen. And maybe they don't know. And I would remind people who think that it's going to be Kaden Hauser or whomever, Levitt or, 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 or Noah Kim or anybody, that it is never the coach's choice. It is never the fan's choice. And most of the time, everybody gets it wrong. Because almost every time in the history of MSU football that there has been a presumed incoming young player who was going to be the guy, they got beaten out by a less heralded guy. And that person wound up be, getting the job. And so – I would just and, – and, and it's also also decided on the field. Like, it is absolutely decided on the field. It is one of those things – the coach doesn't make the decision because you'll see it clear as day and it's obvious to everybody, and that decision gets made on the field by the players. And we don't know who number two is. I think that's right. an important thing, too. There's presumptions that Kate Hauser is going to be the guy, but he wasn't the backup last year. It was Noah Kim. And not only was it Noah Kim, the backup last year, in the last four games when the bowl game looked like it was dangling and probably done and then done, they didn't give any of them the reps. It was, it was still Peyton Thorne, which tells you a lot. I think that there's still, at least coming out of the year, there was a big gap. There was a big enough gap that they didn't think that they could go to another quarterback. And I think that's important. That's an important starting point for this because Mel Tucker has talked about having open competitions for quarterbacks now uh, in, I, I think coming out of his first year with Rocky Lombardi and Peyton Thorne. And then um, I believe that he also said similar things with Peyton Thorne and Anthony Russo. So this is another, he said that every spring that every position is an open competition. So but, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when you hear that. This sounds different, though, than a year ago. A year ago, it was presumed, and they spoke, it was presumed after the year Peyton Thorne had, that he was going to take a step and it was going to be his gig. This year has been a little different. Now, the dynamics behind Thorne are different. You know, Kate well, Housen I think had, the dynamics in front of Thorne are different, quite honestly, because, listen, they had five healthy offensive linemen last spring. How do you get anything as a quarterback in terms of building consistency when you don't even have your starting group there? And that yeah, carried over, those injuries carried over into the fall. And throughout the, the season, you didn't have a consistent offensive line. So they did. Uh, one thing I thought Mel Tucker said today, they have 19 healthy offensive linemen coming into camp right now. That's a lot. And that, that, I, think you, that I think gives all of those quarterbacks a better chance to show what they can do at the top level. So, yeah, yes. And, and, but also last year, they didn't have two young quarterbacks behind them. And one was, the, the, you know, one was a true freshman. And as is know, one now. And now it's one. And now there's a guy who's been through it, who's fairly heralded, who they've had a chance to look at. And, and I also think, you know, given what their internal hopes were last year, they were probably thinking, you're not going to turn over a team that just went 11 and two, a team that's hoping to be back in contention to a freshman quarterback. And, and Noah Kim was even a younger quarterback. But now that you've had this year where things slipped and, and fell off a bit, there, there's it's more of a situation to turn it over to somebody else. And, and, and uh, I'll be very curious because I also don't think we're going to know 100% in the spring. Now, if, if Peyton Thorne thinks he's losing the job at the end of the spring, I would not be surprised if he left but or if it becomes clear. But if you want to keep quarterbacks around this day and age, you want to keep these competitions open. <laughs> and so Absolutely. I, I do, I would be a little surprised if they keep all four of them going into the, into the fall. Cause that just seems like it's hard to do this day and age. But um, I, 
you know, I could see it. And I don't think we'll have, I think, I think the language coming out of the spring will be, we learned a lot. It's still a very open competition. We're going to make a decision in August. And I think that's where it's going to be. Um, and I don't know how much even whittled down it'll be in terms of what we know. Um, we'll have an opportunity probably to see, you know, that open spring practice game, whatever they do and, and, and form some of our own opinions a little bit. Uh, but that, that also only goes, goes so far and isn't, is only one example of one practice. So, uh, doesn't doesn't tell uh, tell everything. We'll have um, a lot more time for spring football. Um, no hire yet of a an assistant coach uh, to replace uh, you know on, on the, uh, and Jordan. But it does sound like Mel Tucker has an idea that he wants to add uh, a coach to the defensive backfield. Yeah, that sounds um, like where that's which going. I, which yep. I believe would then allow him to step away. Uh, from the duties that he took on last year as head coach and then kind of coaching the cornerbacks. I think that's kind of one of those things. And I think that might be a, a, the benefit of having a guy in Dyron Reynolds who has coached the whole defensive line at a power five school and has ex- plenty of experience. I think that there may be a trust factor there that he can handle the, the ends and the interior linemen. Um, trying to think if, uh, yeah, I think those were the, the main points. Well, once, you know, things because there'll be a couple weeks of spring ball probably after the uh the March Madness run and, and we'll get into into football a little more when it feels a little less blasphemous. But uh yeah, this no, isn't quite the eleven and two season coming out of that. There's, there's a little bit of a different vibe, totally. I think. It's not the, the, the hype train that we saw uh the the overzealous hype train last spring. So probably a little more grounded, a little more realistic. And I thought Mel Tucker actually sounded that way. Uh, today, uh, the, the, maybe I think the one other thing that that I think is kind of speaks to that. Um, our, our our friend and colleague Matt Charbonneau asked Mel Tucker. He's well, it's March and you know not normally during the season, but wanted to see where Darius Snow's health was. If you had an update on that, and, and Tucker got a big smile and goes, "He's sore. He'll be ready when he's ready." And I love that self awareness. I thought that was that to me was I thought that was kind of one of those moments where you, where you see Mel Tucker, uh, he has that little sense of humor, so, sort of like D'Antonio used to. Yeah, he, he knows he gives very little with injuries and uh, not going to do it in the spring. For what's I, I, probably a pretty serious injury. My guess is, he, I mean, it was a very serious injury. My guess is he's not going to be available at all this spring for, for actual contact work or anything like that, given uh, the severity of it. Well, we'll have complete coverage for you of uh, the NCAA tournament over the next few days from Columbus uh, in, uh, at Freep.com and LSJ.com and GreenAndWhite.com. And uh, thank you for listening. You can rate, subscribe, throw fruit. We will talk to you soon.